Welcome to Visionaries. I'm your host, Jacob Wolf, a former ESPN award-winning investigative journalist and the CEO and founder of Overcome. Today's show, we welcomed on Ahmed Ali Akbar, who is an award-winning food journalist, the host now of Crooked Media and Duolingo's Radio Lingo podcast, a previous staff member at BuzzFeed, and also, notably, a Project M and Project Plus commentator. A lot of different things that we talk about on this show. We spread a very wide gamut. We do have Prame back with us today, though, to go through this interview a little bit after listening to it together. So, Prame, what were your thoughts on Ahmed coming on the show? I I mean, so I've wanted to have him on the show now for like a month and a half, two months, since learning that he is both a PM like player and national commentator and also a James Beard award-winning food journalist. As someone who's like a, a a pretty diehard foodie, I think it's really fascinating to to see a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, but like a handful of people really lean into the ways in which those two cultures are really kind of universal. It doesn't matter what language you speak. You like eating. Everyone likes mm-hmm. food. And so, like, uh, again, as a foodie, I, I love giving people food because... People just like tasty things. The same is true of gaming, and I think that that's that's this really powerful thing with with Ahmed, where he he very clearly has a sense of the ways in which different aspects of culture break out of of the the population that you might think it's it's native to, and and yeah. have ways of reaching populations that have no real immediate connection to those aspects of culture. Yeah, I think that it's something we go through. You know, he previously hosted a podcast called See Something, Say Something, which was about the Muslim American experience. And it touched on various different parts of culture. And he talked about the difficulty of trying to represent just by the nature of, you know, how many voices can you have on a podcast and through a podcast series. But the nature of trying to represent everyone from every national background and from every subsection of the faith. Right. And it's really interesting to hear him talk more broadly, too, about gaming being a connector in that way, as you mentioned, and food, too. And and I think that more broadly is like, you know, we speaking to Rachel Cowart and Kate McGee earlier this week, it was said that and they're right that, you know, gaming has often been co-opted by one very subsection of, of people, and that is white men predominantly in its player base and in the professional category. But I think as gaming becomes more accessible, being able to work in the industry and the industry becomes more diverse. And by, you know, sort of like a transient effect of that, people that come from gaming go into other things professionally like Ahmed. You know, I think that we're going to feel more connected through gaming. You you know, it doesn't matter the background that you're from if you have a shared interest. And I think you're totally right that food, food and gaming have that in a lot or have that in common. And especially as gaming sort of does become more diverse as a category yeah i think international gaming like the last maybe 10 ish years of of the mainstreaming of gaming has has really proven that to a lot of people like we are seeing this massive uprise of of southeast asian gamers coming to north america or or staying dominant in in southeast asia we're starting to see like indian esports the Middle East has a thriving fighting game community. There are there are parts of Northern Africa that have really active CS:GO communities. I mean, even this week uh, or this month, 
at the Rio Major, there are I think there's I think there's two Indian uh casters on on the analyst's desk, which is awesome. Like we're getting to a point where these these games are so much more accessible and the the culture of it is so much more easily tapped into just because of the internet that we we get to see every different region kind of their perspectives on the game their way of of playing the game their their idea of what the meta is or how how to optimize the game and we're it's awesome i mean it is it is the same thing that we're seeing in food in the last like couple decades where more and more people are realizing the value of fusion that is very true to kind of an original culture it's it's part of the reason that a lot of like Dave Chang's food has become so popular. It, there are so many of these restaurants that do a really great job of being true to like an original culture, but taking the aspects of that culture and applying them in in a new way. Yep. Uh, I think I think that Ahmed really hits that 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 note beautifully. Yeah, and I think what really where I think him and I aligned, as you'll hear later in the interview, is is sort of his passion to show underrepresented communities tell their stories through his work and i and i'm i'm really passionate about that as well giving back to other communities that aren't that don't get the spotlight that don't get the shine that their stories can be sort of co-opted and manufactured and you know sort of stigmatized stereotyped etc and i think that it's really important in the work that journalists like him are doing and that you'll hear him talk about to accurately represent that, not only just you know from a ethical standpoint, but as someone who's a part of the culture, he's a you know a Pakistani American Muslim, and he talking about that, being able to show his culture, show what's important to him, his heritage, and his own work. I think that's what's made his work really special. So we'll go ahead and dive into the interview. Here's our in- interview with Ahmed Ali Akbar. And I, I I will let you know how to pronounce my name because it's the first episode of my podcast. I, a lot of people say Ahmed, but it's actually like Ahmed is the Pakistani Ahmed. way of saying it. Yeah, Ahmed is also good. It's it's for that's usually what people with like more of an American accent end up settling on. Which is great. Uh, so it's Ahmed is, is how it's pronounced. So now I have a really important question: Was the Rad Brown Dads? Uh, it was that tag decided before you were a dad or after you were a dad? It was before, and so many people were confused by that for so long. <laughs> that tag came in 2013, so it's coming on 10 years now. Um, so now we can get into the bulk of the interview. I was going through the tweet and just uh, getting getting it out there so people can see it. So uh, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for that amazing intro, Jacob. Nice to talk to you. I think, you know, I would never call myself a top player. I would just say I'm just a commentator. So, uh, well, I would, I would, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll hold it in my heart. But you know, the real ones know that I have a lot of losses on my record. Yeah, but the thing is, is what we were saying before the show started is that the region you're in, New York, New Jersey, is a very competitive region compared to you know I'm I now live in Texas and have been around sort of the DFW PM community and like that used to also be very competitive once upon a time as well. So I think someone who makes the tier list in those regions deserve, deserves their due and respect. So hats off to you. Thank you. Appreciate that. I, I will always hold that as a success success in my 
you know, flirtation with competitive gaming, which by the way, I've been really interested in it for since two, the early 2000s. I have been uh, in the world of competitive gaming before there was YouTube. <laughs> I was downloading things on like Kazaa, maybe. I don't know. Like like moment Evo Moment 37. I was downloading that on like file sharing apps. So I'm, I'm a real old head. When you first got into that, did you foresee? I mean, obviously you did commentary work. I like went back before this episode and watched some of your commentary work as well. Um, I have to say it's pretty good, especially as someone you, who like. You tried to dabble in smash commentary myself before i went on to be a, a games journalist i ultimately very much respect that and so did you foresee like competitive gaming being your full-time career before you started down your current path i think it was a bit of a dream just kind of like kids wanted to be basketball stars like that was never in the it was that was not in my future any sort of a- athletics but you know i was like uh probably like a, i was a teenager going to the arcade and i realized like there were some people that were just way better than me and i thought i was pretty good they were so good they were doing infinites and stuff on me on in marvel versus capcom 2 so that got me into the competitive world i did want to it was like a dream it was like yeah i want to go to evo and i want to be on the stage uh, i don't know what that means or whether there's a career in it but it was certainly something that i really like still in my heart of hearts i'm like one day i'll spend like a year grinding and i'll make it to like you know grand finals of of a national so it's like kind of like anybody who's into like a competitive thing you 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 get bit by the bug and it kind of you either you either have to accept it or you just let it keep infecting you and i'm still i like have been thinking about it mind like since that moment in the arcade when like somebody was just so much better than me at marvel scapcom 2 as a career, once I started like commentating, I I was doing Project M, which is, as you may know, <laughs> a, a controversial game because of its because um, it's a mod. So I didn't really I did it out of love of the game. I I know I see a lot of people who do commentating for a career move. It was never a career mm-hmm. move for me. If I had wanted to do career move, I would have commentated fighting games, which were my original love. But I was just like really charmed by the Project M community. I had a lot of family in that community, so that's the community that I ended up commentating for. But it wasn't because it was a career. It was out of the joy. And for those maybe unfamiliar with Project M, I'll explain basically because some of our audio on demand listeners may not be familiar with the mod itself. Project M is a modified version of Super Smash Brothers Brawl to make it not completely, but somewhat more similar to the mechanics of Super Smash Brothers Melee, which is considered by the community a more what's the word? More a better game, a better built game. There are a lot of issues that Super Smash Brothers Brawl had. A lot of players had with Super Smash Brothers Brawl, so the community sort of rallied around. Go ahead. Yeah. Let's say more competitive game. I think was kind of the intention. They were trying to modify sure. it to be a more consistently competitive game. Sure. So there were parts of brawl tripping, etc., that made it somewhat uncompetitive, and I think partly intentional. And given that Melee had this massive community of its own, even at that time, it was still pretty, it was one of the bigger esports in, in its heyday. And I would still say, it, we talk a lot to a lot of people on the show that that's their entry point into esports is Melee. Yeah. That, you know, whether it be as children or whatever it may be, live streams, YouTube, however they get into it. There are a lot of people that have sort of smash tangential parts of their lives. And so Project M was created to modify Super Smash Brothers Brawl to be closer. And then eventually it got even further in depth. They were putting characters into the game that had existed in other versions of, of the title, but also characters that had never existed in the Super Smash Brothers franchise. I'll never forget, and I mentioned this to Alpharad last week, that I was at Forte 3 here in Austin in late 2015, and I got to play an unreleased version of PM before it got killed. They never released this. 
where Knuckles was a part of the game, like from the Sonic franchise. And so this community mod was very popular and ultimately it's death nail was, and I'll say this as somebody who's not speculating and has seen some of the letters, it, it's ultimate death nail was a cease and desist from Nintendo themselves for modifying their, their IP and the game shut down. So, well, I have some news for you. <laughs> Knuckles is in the game now. <laughs> Officially, he is in the game. Like it was, they played it. Project Plus was kind of a revival of Project M, and he's the only character they added to, to the game. He is very well developed, honestly, in terms of feeling like Knuckles. He's also kind of a pain in the butt to fight, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. So Project Plus is now the newer version of that. The other people picked off where picked up where the Project M developers left off. Right. A lot of Project M developers went on to work at other companies and be very successful game developers in their own right. So I've met some of those yeah. people in their new jobs that work on the PM dev team. So uh, hats off to them. So I want to talk about, and we'll kind of bounce back and forth here a little bit. Sure. But the, you know, everybody has a passion that in some way influences their career. And broadcasting was your passion, right? Commentating was, was a passion of yours, as you were talking about. And you went on to be sort of a journal, a multimedia presenter in, in journalism, whether that be podcast, the podcast that you had previously done with BuzzFeed, the podcast that you're doing now with Crooked and Duolingo. How do you think that the commentary work that you were doing as a passion project has influenced your ability to deliver that type of content successfully? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I will say that I started as a commentator before as a journalist, 2013, I think, or 2012, maybe, was around when I started jumping on the mic. I think 2013. And I didn't start being a journalist until like probably a year and a half later. I, I, I picked it up on the job at, at BuzzFeed. There's kind of like two, I would say there's two passions for me. One is to write. I'm a writer, but that's like the one of the things that I've always been passionate about. But the other is to communicate and connect. And to me, that's never been like a particular format. It's like whatever is the thing where you can make meaningful connections. So I was making meaningful connections through commentary. I felt that there was a void perhaps in the Project M commentary at the time that like we could tell better stories because it was a very interesting thing, this modded underground community. So I kind of put in the hours there. And I think it's like with anything, just putting in the grinding time is really important. And it's really funny because I look back at my 2016 podcast when it was released and I, I cringe because it's like so I, I've developed so much as a presenter since then. I've become more comfortable as well. I'm like less insecure. I kind of just present myself as I want to be seen and how I feel na is natural to me. But then if you were to go back to 2013 and probably listen to those first times on the mic at the commentary, I would probably cringe even more out of, out of my seat because sure. that was literally me just experiencing, first of all, live feedback from audience. Second of all, you're having a conversation with somebody live. And one of the things about a podcast about commentary is it is a conversation. And knowing like what you want to say and when to pass is extremely important. And I'm going to do the good guest thing here and I'm going to pass. I'm not going to keep talking past that. But I think like commentary was that those hours put in of getting comfortable of like, what is my voice as a presenter? What is my voice on the internet as well? Like the fact that people can speak, you know, like I used to, you know, do d debate and speech and stuff and model UN. One of those things about that is you'd go up and you'd sit down and you wouldn't get feedback. Online, yep. you're getting feedback immediately. So you kind of have to decide, like, what are you willing to put as part of your voice? What are you willing to take criticism for? And like, what is kind of the purpose of putting your voice out there? And I sort of had maybe a more strong vision of that because I was coming from outside of these worlds. But some people I know are like just doing it straight from a passion for gaming as well. That's also like important. 
element of it as well. Yeah, I totally feel that with you. Like one of the, you know, I did like a a live show remote in 2015 that I like kind of just produced with a, with some buddies and like I haven't watched those vods. Probably terrible. Um, yeah. but really, really, Smash you probably put a lot of work in it, right? Like, yeah, you probably put a lot of work in it. Hundred percent. I was like freelance journalist and doing that at the same time. And I had also a, you know, I had a sort of passion for that. And then also Smash commentary, which I got to do a little bit with JV and Neptune, who are yeah. very successful in, in Dallas Fort Worth. And now two different, do two very different things that uh, we work a lot with Neptune's company AOE. And, and I still talk to JV quite frequently, good people. But yeah, it, and it's just funny to think about like the development, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of this, like almost career reinvention, changing what I'm focusing on a little bit. And like, People are discovering me for the first time. I'm glad they're discovering me now after like almost half a decade at ESPN and like a lot of like formal right, presentation right. stuff. I've learned a lot. So it's, right, uh, I totally right. like empathize with where you're at. So, uh, yeah. and understand where you're coming from. I'll also say shout outs to Yipes and TK Breezy and EE, who are all big influences on me as a voice. And I didn't, and also I would say on the podcasting side, there was Tracy Clayton and Heaven Nagatu of Another Round. Those are like my big influences on what kind of voice I wanted to put out there. Even though mine is very much my own, those people really influenced me. When when did you start doing journalism? And and you said you were at BuzzFeed first, and then you started doing more journalism. Like, what was that transition like? And what I guess what was your ultimate goal at the time? Sure. Yeah. So I was in grad school in 2012, 2014 when I started getting into competitive gaming. It wasn't just Smash; it was also Ultimate Marvel. So I was like doing a lot of different things. I was kind of figuring out my life, and I just started blogging. I started doing this blog, Rad Brown Dads, and it was kind of like funny, but it was also kind of cultural history of like South Asian immigrants, Muslim immigrants, African, Asian immigrants, like it's like other non-South Asian, non-Muslim people got intrigued by it and started submitting. Like Hassan Minaj apparently was a reader of it. He like name dropped it like in a one of his um, awesome. Patriot Act. I'm like a huge, huge he, fan of his. Yeah. Yeah. He was like, he was like, he told the story about his dad and he was like, it was a real like how his dad was like really sweet to him. He was like, it was a real radbrowndads.tumblr.com moment. That was like a, a blog I did for like two, three years in, in grad school. So I wasn't enjoying grad school because of the lack of feedback and community engagement. You know, grad school is really great if you want to get an, become an expert in something and really unbreak the way you currently think about things in lazy ways. That's super useful. I don't I, like, but I didn't, as a career, I found it too siloed. So like I was enjoying blogging and as a result, I like completed my master's degree in Islamic studies and was like, how can I use these skills and spread it like I did Rad Brown Dads? And I started applying to online journalism fellowships, Mike, Bustle, BuzzFeed, for whatever reason, BuzzFeed was like the only one that gave me an interview. And they liked that I had both of those things, you know, the um, kind of the academic reporterly stuff that could come from grad school, like that expertise. But I also was like, you know, kind of a comedian, online writer type person, you know, I would yeah. say comedian, but like, you know, I, I can, I could, I could be accessible as well. So yes. that combination brought me in there. And then everything else I learned on the job. I literally learned everything about journalism on the job. And it was the right fit for me, honestly, like, it allows me to be versatile, which I don't want to, like you said, food journalist, commentator, you know, podcast hosts. it's like, these things don't all necessarily go together, but it's because it, like this career allows me to do all of that. And people come because they, you know, have, for whatever reason, I'm very blessed to say that like people sometimes care about what I'm thinking about. And it's, I, it's truly, I'm writing about it or presenting about it because it's something that I'm thinking about. 
and I want to have a conversation. You know, it seems like to me through the the through line through a lot of the work that you've done, whether that be the podcast, see something, say something that you hosted at BuzzFeed, some of the stuff that you're doing now with with the Radio Lingo Project, which I want to talk about in more depth later, and even the tagline, the blog, everything, it's all connected to your culture and explaining the culture that you have, whether yeah. that be, you know, you were mentioning earlier about your dad being, you know, the, the Rad Brown dad. Rad Brown dad. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the tag came from from your father in admiration of your dad. So, yeah. you know, walk me through the importance of, of sharing that with other people, because I think, you know, the one thing is I have a lot of friends uh, of sort of minority background, whether that be in color or in religion. And I know that for them, it, it can sometimes be tough to be so open and vulnerable talking about those things and, and also just sharing it with others because it's so like it's held re really close in, in communities, you know, because everybody's very bound together. So talk to me about like opening up of that and making a big sure. part of your public identity as, as well as your private identity. Sure. So, I mean, first of all, it's authentic. I mean, it is who I am. Second of all, I, I was thrust into that spotlight at a very young age <laughs> by my parents. And in some ways, I kind of, accepted that burden and rejected it. And I'll explain really quickly what, what I mean with a short story, which is that my parents, at, when 9-11 happened, they were like, nobody knows who we are as people. They think we are terrorists. And, you know, we've been a, a community here in mid-Michigan for, you know, decades. And we have a lot of beliefs that are in common with everyday Americans. And so, like, I visited a lot of churches and did a lot of community outreach. Hmm. and and schools and like i gave a speech in front of my school and i actually did not like that feeling. i did not like that feeling of i have to explain myself i have hmm. to explain who i am what i believe i have to tell you i'm human that really bothered because i would spend a lot of time and energy and it was clear from the audience that maybe some people got it but they were open to it and the people that were not open to it still like thought i might know where osama bin laden is for instance that was one of the Questions I remember when I was 13 is like the, somebody in the audience asked me where Osama Bin Laden was. And, you know, everyone unlearns their biases and bigotry in their own time. But for me, it was important to not focus on that. It was more important to tell the story of who I am and the people I come from and the community I come from. And not to explain, but to sort of give depth through storytelling. And so that's why I do a lot of reporting and first person narratives as well. Because I think perspective is influences everything. I, I've seen the ways in which white American perspectives have been made to be invisible, like they're the neutral thing. And to me, like it's not neutral. It, it I, I, I don't, sure. and I don't. It's, it's like I'm watching Love Is Blind, and everyone is talking about all these marriage traditions, like the daddy daughter dance. And I was like, I, to me, this is still not my culture. And that's fine that it's other people's culture, but it's not a neutral thing, right? Like everyone has their yeah. own thing. So all I, I just, I just try to recenter my narratives around the things that I saw growing up and that were normal to me, as opposed to trying to say, Hey, I'm human. And like trying to, so trying to kind of explain myself, I try to tell stories. And that's, that's also the kind of media that I'm attracted to as well. And I think it's more effective. You know, you, you, you're more, not that like, I don't, if somebody is less hateful as a result of my work. That's great, but I don't really care if they're not because hey, it's not my job to stop somebody from being uh, 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 like bigoted in any way. But I think my work has had an impact in that way. I won't say it won't, but I just like this is not my goal really is to explain myself in that way.
you know what's really interesting too and this kind of moves us into the next part of the conversation is that you know, i'm a big fan of jason Rezaian, the iranian-american journalist who was wrongly imprisoned in iran right. for 544 days i've got his book on my shelf i've read through it i listened to his entire narrative podcast that he did actually co-produced by crooked um and that's on something my list, sadly i haven't listened i'm sorry <laughs> but i know his story yeah and one of the things that he sort of has talked about a little bit is that they he was very close with anthony bourdain and bourdain books actually published his book even though it's that's not the traditional book that they usually publish in that style talking about his imprisonment and something he talked about i went and met him and his wife yagi at a speaking of it in new york when the book came out as well and something that they spoke about was sharing that culture normalizing that culture giving it a voice through food and that Bourdain mm -hmm. had done that with them, with all of his shows before his passing. And I think that in your work and some of the work that you've done, like food is something everybody likes food. Nobody doesn't like food. Right. And so exploring culture through food, I think, is really intriguing. I, yeah. I mean, I, I guess, like, what is drawn you to do that in some of your work more broadly to use food as that sort of centerpiece? I, I mean, you, you nailed it, honestly. Like, it's it's that's a big reason why is because everybody can understand through food. It's a basic, fundamental human need that we all share. And you, you also get exposed to so many different things as a result of food. For me in particular, Muslim as a category is a complicated category. It is not mm -hmm. a racial category. However much people try to make it a racial category, it's not a racial category. It's a religious category. So the right. thing, so I had done a lot of work representing Muslim culture, but I was always a little hesitant about it because no matter what, you platform a certain kind of voice, other things are being minimized. In any conversation about American Muslims, you know, you, you have to think about the fact that like a like some significant proportion is converts, black American, that we have people who are religious minorities like Shia or Ahmadi. And as a journalist, like I'm neutral on like what the Muslim experience is. I can't say like a Sunni Pakistani Muslim is the is is a Muslim. All those people are kind of equally have a claim to the story of, of Muslims. So it was really challenging for me to do conversational podcasts about this because there always felt like no matter what conversation was happening, there was a voice missing. There were several voices missing. So the nice thing about food is that you can focus on one, a religious category. There's this category of halal, which is deeply misunderstood in America. It's, a, it's not a cuisine. It's a religious categorization of slaughter, of meat to the meat and maybe like alcohol and, prepara also. and preparation too, like the, the handling of things and making sure that they abide by somewhat of a certain guideline. Sure. It's not as strict as kosher, right? B because yes. you, you know, like it's not as strict as that, but sure. Like if the meat is cooked in alcohol or bacon, like that would stop it. Even if it was slaughtered in a halal way, that would certainly make it not halal. So as a category, it's a very interesting journalistic category and an underreported one. And, you know, that's kind of one of my pivots that I want to do, Jacob, is finding the right platform in which I can report on halal food in America. And, you know, to be honest, it's been hard. It's been really hard to find, despite like a lot of success in other venues, it's been really hard to find a place where I could dig into this religious category of food where like you can get at the diversity of American Muslim culture through food like Bourdain did, which I also appreciate so much about his shows. I learned so much about some of those communities I report on through Bourdain, through food, like watching his Senegal trip was really eye-opening for me. Watching his Turkey trip was really eye-opening for me because they really made me question as somebody who has reported on American Muslims for so long, 
what does it mean to be a Muslim? When these these different ways of being that I am I can't always represent. So yeah, I mean Bourdain is the goal. <laughs> I would like to get there one day, of course. But I, I know everyone says that, but like you know, he did it well. He did it well for, and we all we I give I still give him his props. Incredibly open minded. It was never about yeah. you know a lot of the food programming content etc is about like shock and awe. You know, like another yeah. person that I watch. And she tweeted yesterday, happy birthday to Gordon Ramsay is Trisha Asperti, who is a Twitch streamer that does cooking shows. She got invited on one of Gordon Ramsay's shows that he judges people food. And she okay. and he asked, like, what she does for a living. And she's like, I stream my, my cooking show on Twitch. And he's like, what the f- is Twitch? Like, just <laughs> it's like this, like, very memeable moment of, like, yeah. Gordon Ramsay going, what the f- is Twitch? That's you know, and that's, that's shock and <laughs> all. Like, that's the shock that's and all moment. Yeah. Not yeah. sort of like the more. Yeah, not not the like. Let me explore this. I like the the Bourdain style and sort of all its derivatives, like exploring culture through food. I think that's and very importantly, unique. he he did not punch down. That's the other always. thing about Bourdain that was so good. He was always willing to take a fight with somebody who had power and deserved it, which is, as journalists, something we should always be aware of. And he was always willing to bring up people who weren't necessarily um, centered. And that's something that I also take into my work. I try to. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what sticks with me hearing like Jason speak about Bourdain's trip to Iran when they were there is, is sort of, you know, this is somebody he like interfaced with and got to come and, and try Iranian food with Persian food with. And then one of the last dying wishes was to publish his book, which is just like incredible. I mean, like yeah. you can't, yeah. Like it was a supporter throughout the entire imprisonment alongside the people at the Washington post, et cetera. It's just like those principles are really, you, you don't think food journalism is that, deep and serious necessarily you just think food right i don't think people understand the nuance behind it and i appreciate that there was someone in that category that really made it outward yeah. outward in their personality demonstrated well well i think any, doing anything any kind of creative stuff well is hard and you have to put a lot of work into it and some you know that it's good when you see the best example of it and we should all strive to that but like it's it's hard not to feel let down when others don't rise to that bourdain level and I'm hard on myself. I, I feel like I have a lot to work on. And I, I, I think, you know, that kind of ambition that he had was really incredible. There's something else I wanted to tell you, which is on Rezaian, that uh, another way in which my work intersected with him is I did this podcast about Muhammad Ali's faith journey for PRX and America Abroad Media. And he gave this great piece of tape about how Muhammad Ali speaking on his behalf was like, and trying to advocate to get him out of uh, out of you know his imprisonment was like such a buoy to his spirits yes and muhammad ali is another one of these people who has like this universal kind of appeal of always fighting for the little guy and advocating for you know a universal kind of notion of humanity while also being specific to his own identity as a black muslim american you know like you can do both you can both be specific about your own story and and tell it, but also connect to people of all different backgrounds. You know, you were talking about about Islam being not a monolith, and that it is it is splintered and different in the way you know there are Muslims from different cult or different cultures from the countries that their ancestors come from in, in Muslim Amer- yeah. or in Muslim Americans, whether it be Iranian, Pakistani, uh, you know, Indian. We've talked about several different people on here: Jason Rezaian, a, a Iranian Iranian American Muslim, uh, Hassan Mendaj, a Indian American Muslim. Right, like various different people of different cultures, and yes, there is some overlap, but at the same time, everything is very different. And I think that sort of delineating, I think it can be very hard for Americans out of ignorance to delineate from the different cultures in their way. And so I, I admire the work you're doing to 
sort of give the voice and, and also be very specific in your direction, Pakistani American Muslim experience, food, culture, yeah. et cetera. Did you ever receive blowback from people of other or other uh, country backgrounds, ancestry backgrounds for the work that you were doing and, and not representing that experience in the way that they saw fit correct? Yes, absolutely. Like I said, anytime we had a conversation between three or four people, many times people would say that they didn't feel represented. And I did as much. One of the things you might know, Jacob, about production is you plan for the best and hope for the worst. And sometimes you have a perfect panel that's like diverse and has, you know, a good mix of people. And then some two people back out, one person backs out. And the audience doesn't know that, you know, and you have to do your best best to kind of represent those voices while also acknowledging that there's some complications. And then also, I think on the other hand, one thing that I will say that I got some pushback as opposed to national background, I think one of the big pushbacks is on religiosity and minority groups. There's mm. more than, I think mostly, meaning Shia and Ahmadi Muslims, these, yes. these kind of religious minorities that are, you know, the Sun, like I'm a Sunni, I'm, I'm of the majority of like. I always joke that like I'm basically like as far as American Muslims go, I'm like a white guy. Like I just am neutral. <laughs> like I'm a Pakistani Muslim man, like Sunni, like I'm I'm quite neutral in many ways. That's how people would like it to be. That's how people who other Pakistanis often think of their own community. They they don't they don't consider other other voices. So a lot of the pushback was about the um focusing on queer Muslims who, regardless of whether or not you agree with that on a religious level, they exist and they're a major part of our um, uh, of our American landscape. They're having a big impact, and reporting on it is it is important. On um, you know highlighting Shia or Ahmadi Muslims, like I have definitely faced uh, pushback there. And you know, we've seen that there has been a lot of just desire to control what the narrative is from within the community. And I just try to fight against that as much as I can. I, I you know it's 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 not. I don't always do the best job because it's not easy. But I, I always I try I try my best. In terms of what you're doing now, the Radio Lingo show was just announced between Duolingo and Crooked that you are hosting. What is the objective of this show at a broad level? Sure. So Duo and Crooked have I think two amazing brands that really just fit well together. Duo has done so much work on the science of language and, and spreading the love of learning language, and Crooked, of course, has done a lot of really incisive um, commentary and reporting. And I think bringing those together with language as the basis is going to change a lot of minds. I think we have a lot of preconceptions and biases around language. Like if we have challenged a lot of our racial biases, our gender biases, our class biases, language is tied up in all of that. The bias that we kind of are, have all been raised with by our educational system, by the cultural groups we're in, that's something that we can really interrogate and it can help make a more inclusive world. And that's part of, I think, why I wanted to do this. Because for me, linguistics and language was very liberatory in learning like how connected humans are in general, but also how unique they are. And then on the other hand, there's that kind of like serious thing. But it's also, um, for me, like the ability to highlight a lots of different unique stories of human resilience, human like humor, that is also part of the goal. So it's a little bit of both. Each episode has a different focus. And we have one, like, for instance, on the challenge I have of getting people to say my name correctly and whether mm-hmm. there is such a thing as a, a way to say my name correctly. Spoiler alert, I don't think there is a one correct way to say my name. We talk about, you know, accents and the biases we have against, like, for instance, the Midwestern accent, which I grew up with, the Michigan accent. Um, people often feel they don't have an accent. And that's very interesting to me because I noticed they had an accent that was different from my own. 
gender bias. Like we do, we have a, we have a lot of different ways of getting into this, and we we also have had some fun. Like there's this episode about the subtitling uh, industry. I know a lot of people hate dubs, but I like I digged into the dubbing industry of both like um, mainstream TV TV and movie shows, but also like a little bit of anime and. I kind of grew came away from it like really loving dub dubs. <laughs> like I know I know a lot of gamers are like no dub sub only, yeah. but I, I was like, wow, it's like not an easy thing to do what they're doing, and we mm. have an episode about that. Well, well, the pacing so, you know, is super hard, of course, right? Like being able to like fit in the pacing when you translate language because yeah. like the way you say something and one and you know if you're you were saying like anime Japanese versus English and being able to like make Japanese pacing in English language, right? Like it is super. tough. Oh, I admire yeah. that a lot. The people that so do hard, yeah, so hard. So yeah, we're, we're we're trying to we're trying to take shoot a wide net. You know the way like a lot of my favorite podcasts are variety shows. They're magazine shows. You know you get something different and interesting. Obviously, I'm the host and I kind of guide you through my perspective to some extent. And what's fun about that is like I did get to dig into some of the questions I had about languages that I speak, and I learned a lot through it. And you know I'm really proud of what we came out with. I'm excited for everyone to listen to it. How much of the show is going to be reporting versus personal experience? It's it's very minimally personal experience. It's mostly reporting interviews, you know, relying on expertise of scientists and professors. We talk to a lot of linguist, ling, linguistics professors. So, you know, I think to the extent that it informs the story, I bring in the personal. But it's it, like that first episode about my name, like that's an unusual episode. I yeah. When I pitched that to them, I was like, I don't want them all to be about me. But I think this is an interesting way to get into the way in which language kind of shapes so much of our experience in the world. And, you know, but it, it, it's it's really more of an exception than it is the rule. And how did the show come to be? What is the pitch story here? So I think Crooked and Duo had come together and seen that there was some alignment. And I pitched them a couple of episode ideas in some early conversations. And they liked what I had come up with. There wasn't like, you know, I think part of the reason it's me is because I worked in the podcast industry and have experience making narrative shows, meaning, you know, you like as opposed to this, where we're like sitting down and talking one on one, you know, you're writing a script, you're writing a you're thinking about how to use ambient audio or found tape to enrich the, the script. You are figuring out when to stop talk using one voice and use another. Like these are kind of the skills that I've picked up in radio. So that was kind of why i think i was i mean i don't know who else was interviewed for it but i just know that like they liked my ideas and and you know i put we put together that pilot and they really love that pilot which is the one about the names which is still the first episode of the series and what's exciting about it too is it's their first partnered podcast that crooked has done hmm. um it's their first yeah. and i believe also duo has not really dug into this space in, in english narrative podcasts in the same way they have some podcast and other you have to correct me if i'm wrong i'm not yeah i think they don't have a narrative podcast they have sort of like talk style stuff yeah that's self-published that they publish themselves so for all for both of them it's a new kind of territory that's exciting and they it's really cool to work with a client like duolingo because they have a lot of expertise you know like there are questions that they thought thought to ask in my scripts that i would have in a typical journalistic fashion would have probably wouldn't have been dug into by a typical editor, but they have that expertise where they could really dig into some of that nuanced science. You know, we're really focused on trying to make science a big part of this. That's really interesting. I uh, on the narrative podcast side, please send me your brain power now that you're done with it, because I'm in the middle of like writing and narrating podcast that's going to be coming out next year. So it, 
yeah, this this is the next like eight, nine weeks for me. So please sit, send Let's... the brain power across the screen. I'm happy to do a call and talk about it. I love that's like it's so weird. I fall into the space. I don't know how I fell into this space. Like I'm, I'm like I'm like I'm a writer. Like I'm now writing narrative podcasts. This is very interesting. It's kind of but I'm also like on the side doing like as you know like we maybe we'll talk about this is like probably one of my big passion projects was that piece I did for Eater about mangoes that won me the James Beard Award. It's like it's just funny. Like I have these different tracks and it's it's you know but surprisingly I think like most most of my days now spend not writing for print, but writing for audio, writing narrative scripture audio. So yeah, happy to, happy to, you know, give you any feedback or, you know, help thank, in any way. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's the one category I'm most obsessed with in podcasting more broadly. I think a lot of people are, but yeah. you know, it's, I've fallen down the rabbit hole of so many of them, like serial being among the first in the category. Yeah. Right. And then like Classic. going, going down it more recently, I'm trying to remember which one I finished most recently the one that's most memorable in like the past year or like 18 months for me is exit scam the aaron lammer podcast from not from the pineapple people but not the pineapple people it wasn't like exactly <laughs> yeah. produced by pineapple street but it was incredible incredible podcast you guys should go listen to that because especially yeah. in the wake of the uh ftx news it's a um canadian crypto exchange that like its founder died and all the money was gone and oh uh, i know about that story but i didn't know the podcast that's, yes, that's there, a very funny story it's uh there's a podcast about it and there's been a lot of speculation about whether he actually died and they sort of dig into that so <laughs> oh yes. okay okay right right yeah i'm yes. not that caught up with that but now i'm interested good yeah that, go listen to access camp people aaron aaron's a good dude too i appreciate and my fellow past brooklynites all of all of us so yeah i i love those people so yeah so we're going to take some audience questions towards the end if people have got some. I see a few Smash folks that I recognize in, in the space. So please, if you have a serious Smash Brothers question and or uh, anything else, um, we can bring you up to ask towards the end. So the one thing I want to ask, because I'm dealing with this in my career now, and I'm sure you have a little bit too, and, and maybe do, or maybe you don't, maybe you're one of the lucky of it, one of us, but is Richard Lewis was on the show, the controversial esports journalist about a week ago, week and a half ago. And something he said is the big thing when you have an audience, because he's trying to transition out of esports and go into other things. He's been like, he has the show about called I Hate It Here, where he like reads news headlines from around the world that are just like yeah. crazy and whatever and reacts to them in real time. And the one thing he said is like basically talking about how intoxicating it is to have an audience. And when you do a career pivot, you change the topic or whatever, being fearful of losing it. Your work has spanned. That, again, there is that narrative through line of culture and sharing your culture in, in your work, but it's it's been, like you said, it's a little different. Everything's a little bit different, and you've had a lot of success in some things. You were talking about the piece from Eater. Is, does it worry you when, especially being sort of like a Swiss Army Knife freelancer, does it worry you that like the next thing's not going to be as successful as the, as the thing that you had done previously? Do you get a little bit of that imposter syndrome? I try not to think about it, <laughs> which is probably not a very good career strategy. But, you know, I, I think, first of all, I, I was staffed for four years, right? I was staffed at BuzzFeed, and now I've been probably freelance for four years. Um, and one of the things that I found when I was staffed is you have to hit a quota, you have to hit a certain amount of pieces, and I would write about a lot of things I don't care about. And sometimes they were good. Sometimes the things that I didn't really care about were like, I look, look back, I was like, well, that's good. It was like good to be pressured to like write, you know, a certain amount of stuff that you need. On the other hand, now I'm at a place where I can mostly choose what I what I want to do and what I've kind of come at it from a career perspective, whereas I think a lot of 
people have to think about it like what you're describing from like a, I want to say an influencer or like a, a a creator perspective like there's no doubt that I have had to dig into creator tool sets to some extent mm-hmm. like in order to succeed but what I've done instead of like trying to make that my primary thing I don't want to develop that's not what I'm interested in doing so I have never I've been lucky enough because I was at BuzzFeed I started my podcast there and then I left and was able to contract the skill sets that I had developed that I haven't had to worry about audience development. Now, at a certain point, there's a very real possibility that people get sick of what I'm saying, people get sick of my work, and I don't get contracts anymore. That could happen, obviously. I'm hopeful it, it, it's not, but for now, it's been working where I can focus on the things that I want to do, and which is like writing, you know, focusing on honing my voice, you know, highlighting other people's voices who I think the world should know about in, in, in the context of the companies that i'm working with and less on the audience stuff now that doesn't mean that i won't ever go in there but i i think one of the the traps about online creators that we have is that all of these platforms want us to give up their labor for free they want us to develop audiences for them and we are making nothing out of it i started early in my career doing a little bit of that but i pivoted quickly to working in industry and the problem with industry of course journalism as you know is that layoffs are very prevalent stability Mm -hmm. is very hard to find in this world which is really a shame because it's had a big impact on our democracy on our world you know like it would be great if we had like a well-funded media sector and not startup vc funded like a like it's a public good we should all care about so you know i have just to the extent that i can i've stayed contracted as a specific like in a very narrow sense but while still doing all the things that i like to do and it's been a really nice ride so far and i hope it doesn't end but you're right that one day it could and maybe you know i'll i'll, I'll have to pivot to something else but for now it's working so i'm gonna i i i, I, tr- I try to have one or two year plans i don't try to like with this world i don't try to like you know like 10 years ago t- twitter would not get you a job you know but twitter got me a job now so just keeping with short-term plans for now is what i kind of kind of do medium term let's say i i'm incredibly envious of that as someone who uh yeah i mean it's uh i can understand being in the position you know almost five years at espn like taking that swan dive and just being like yeah i'm gonna do my own thing and that was like my immediate reaction on my last year at espn so i i feel that i i can relate a lot so um but it's been 10 years right 10 almost 10 years of working on audience development and these skill sets so it's not like it was like a rapid thing it just lots of little things picking up over time and I'm sure you have, you're, you have, you're, you're doing a, I, I come on, don't, you're underselling yourself. <laughs> no, hundred percent. No, we, we've grown, we've grown this podcast on audio on demand. I'm so proud of the team from like its second month had 2000 plus listeners, which is great. In, incredible. Yeah. So like that is great on, on track to have like 4,000 this month, which is or 4,000 or 5,000 this month. So it, most podcasts don't make it past like a hundred, much less yeah. that this no, far. No kidding. So. Okay. Yeah, it takes it takes forever. Podcasts are a tough industry, but hopefully unique nuance and hopefully the show you're doing. I, I wish you all the luck with it. I, I will Fingers be listening. Crossed. I'm Thank very you. interested. I listen to almost everything Cricket does anyway, and they will will get me to do so through their uh, very well-placed promos that bouncing people <laughs> around within their network. So I'm sure I'll hear Radio Wingo ads on pod save, on both pod saves, world and America. So Yeah, you'll definitely yeah. hear. I recorded some ads for sure, <laughs> which is probably the thing that I have to work on the most. I really uh, I uh, hate it. Ads are hard to do. <laughs> I no, have I, people who can do a good ad. I'm yeah. so happy that like audio is 
you can jump cut an audio and people and you can <laughs> sell it where people don't know right yeah, like yeah, yeah. i was filming something today like behind me and i was like set up camera on the desk like all like set up in the background behind me and i'm just like i hate this i hate this i hate this i hate this like i wasn't script reading but i was just like i hate like dead to camera i'm way better at conversation so yeah So I think Prem from my team had a question. Hey, so as someone who I I, I kind of like look forward to the co uh, couple Smash majors I get to every year, I I really appreciate the kind of shared language, quote unquote, of of gaming. Uh, I I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on how. Some of the the sounds, terms, and and uh, I guess things like voice lines that play a role in gaming, how they how they kind of build into this larger language that that is shared across gaming cultures. I was yeah, I was curious if we we're going to talk about linguistics and gaming at all because I I we didn't dig into it, but it's a great question about what are the things that are being developed online that didn't exist. Like for instance, I mean, I'm not somebody who uses this, but like PogChip. <laughs> like what is PogChip? Like I would love for a linguist, linguist to like explain how PogChip, is it a, is it a category that existed before? You know, do you know what I mean? Like as, as a category of words, like how is it a new category? The, the Twitch chat response, like just somebody saying PogChip. Like that, that, that's very interesting to me. And then, of course, there's all the slang that has like permeated the world, like the world of online gaming, like Scoops, Hagen does. Like, I mean, I, I, I love that. Like, there's a there's a language around there. But then the other thing, the third thing that I think is really interesting is the subcultures of each gaming community's language. Sometimes you start a new game and you go to the subreddit or something, and you're like, "What are they saying? Is this English?" Like, for instance, I don't know, Jacob, have you played Monster Train? Um, I have not. Oh, okay. Monster Train is like a Slay the Spire type game. I've played that game for about 20 hours. I don't understand anything of what they're saying. Like, just the grammar of it is feels different. So I feel like it's, a, it's probably going to be something that scientists will study eventually. But I think we're in the middle of it. But I, I would be very intrigued in like 50 years, the papers that people are going to be writing about Pogchamp. <laughs> Like I feel like there's gonna be a paper on PogChamp and like in, in fifty years and and like the Twitch, um, kind of slang and reacts. Yeah, I hate to admit this, but I had to scroll through an alt right forum this morning to find a really awful image for something related to production work, and some of the slang there I would also like to understand what it means because those aren't places that I often scroll, and I'm just like this is deeply uncomfortable. I don't know what these words mean, and they're probably not good things. So, yeah. 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 Linguistics when it comes to niche communities is always really interesting, be that gaming or, or other things. So, yeah. But we do have an, an audience question from JV, who I mentioned earlier. Shout out to JV, the uh, Smash commentator turned marketer. JV, go ahead and ask your question. Hey, uh, so first off, I hope I'm coming through okay. I'm in my car right now driving to the grocery store. But I, I guess one thing that I really appreciate is seeing you know, brown people do things that is kind of outside of 
the path that's sort of been laid out by us. And and, and I, this is like a touchy subject, so hopefully I'm, I'm saying this correctly, but it, feel, it felt like my entire life, I was kind of in this pipeline to, to ideally become like a doctor or like a lawyer or engineer. And so when I decided to, to say, screw all that and, you know, do what I'm doing in gaming and esports, it was kind of like a big shell shock for my family and also, you know, the, the community around me. So I guess my question is like, why aren't there like more people that look like us doing the things that we do, whether it's what you're doing in journalism and beyond or like myself in gaming and esports? Great question. And I think you articulated it, JV, really well. I will say this, which is, first of all, we're all a product of the history that we came from. And many of us are products of the immigration policy in this country. There is a need for more professionals, doctors to come to this country. And, you know, the J-1 visa was very influential in bringing over many people. And who comes over but professionals who are going to want to recreate the sort of class status that exists. Now, if you go to, you know, I spent a lot of time in college studying, you know, kind of South Asian history and, and I was, it's like, it's not all doctors. <laughs> you know, most of that history is not all doctors and engineers. Those are the people that came to America. So we're a result of, of that. And learning that history was very important to me to know that like, it's not an intu- an intuitive or normal, like it's not abnormal to want to be an artist, to want to be a radio person, to want to be a journalist. Like, I also think about my own mother, who was actually, who, bless her soul, she's passed away like 10 years ago. She wanted to be a journalist, actually, in the, in, in the 70s in Pakistan. But, you know, it's not easy in any society being like an independent woman. And then she was in Pakistan in the 70s. Her, her family was like, the best goal for you is to go to medical school. That'll give you career stability and respect in a way that other things won't do. And you can do those other things as a hobby. But like, there's plenty of instances in our history of people doing other kinds of things. I think the, the doctor, engineer, lawyer thing is just a reflection of the immigration policy that brought the kind of people that brought, were brought over. And my mother, to her kind of in the complexity, despite wanting to be a journalist herself, she wanted me to be a doctor as well. And she would probably be disappointed that I wasn't a doctor, even though I achieved the goal that she had wanted for herself. So it's a complicated thing. And I think you know, like knowing that there are other models is, is, is important, but also knowing that like we are the product of a certain kind of political and immigration history and we can choose to break out of it if we want to. And it, you know, it's, it's not like a moral judgment either way, despite people wanting to shame us for, for, you know, people to be shamed for doing something different or also for them to doing, doing the things that their parents asked them to do. Both are perfectly acceptable options. As an old, old ass man now, I'm like, both are good. Like both things are fine. You can get your money or you can follow your passion. As long as you're you know, doing right by your people, that's all that really. We'll end on this question for me and follow up on that because uh, you're a dad. Um, and, yeah. you know, how do you think about that when you think about your your ch- children or child and, and eventually maybe children uh, and, and how you'll kind of carry that influence and, and encourage them the way that you'll push them versus where your parents pushed you? Yeah. What I learned from watching my parents' story and watching my own story is that all you can do as a parent is give your child the tools to choose, and they will make a decision that's best for their time that they live in, for the culture that they live in. My parents did things that their parents did not like. They got married, and nobody approved of that marriage. So, like the idea that like generations before us were like less rebellious or something, no. Like every generation has their own rebellion. My daughter, I'm sure, will do something that really confuses me, 
my goal is to just teach her about her history, about the people she comes from, about the values that are important, about, you know, universal ideas of justice and support for the under underserved and speaking up on behalf of people who need to be spoken up on behalf of and you know love for food and like all the joyous stuff too you know like how to have fun and show your love for other people in a way that's respectful and and brings joy and sweetness to life she will make the decisions with all that information and it may confuse me but i'm only there to guide her and she will make her own path much like i made my own path much like my parents made my path made their own path well, I extremely admire that. Thank you for for that, and I'm that was a fantastic answer. So thank thank you for coming on the show. It's much appreciated. We wish you the best of luck with Radio Lingo Pod when it's out and and starts releasing. Can I make one plug before we go? First of all, thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk and to connect with you. If you want to listen to Radio Lingo, there is a link in my bio that you can click on. It's there's just a trailer out now. The show will release in about a week, November fifteenth. I I'm bad with dates. I believe that's correct. Um, even though I said it in a promo. But if you click on the link in my bio, you will find information on where to subscribe. And please listen in and let me know what you think. I work really hard on it. It's like a huge achievement for, for me. And I really hope it finds an audience. So please support it in, the, in any way that you can. And uh, hopefully I'll see you all at a Smash tournament soon after my child grows up. <laughs> That's all for our show. If you enjoyed this episode of Visionaries, you can find more like it on our feeds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, consider leaving us a review. It really helps other people find the show as well. Special thanks to Sammy Daig and Prem Thotamkara for working on this episode. We'll see you next Wednesday for our interview with YouTube creator and streaming superstar Cutie Cinderella. 